Hello everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, a multi-award-winning first therapeutic radioactive oncology podcast. Welcome to a bonus episode in collaboration with the MR Linux Consortium. My name is Naman Joker Anderson and I'm joined by fellow host Joe McNamara. Hi everyone! So we're very excited to share this collaboration to showcase patient experience, clinical practice and research around the MR Linux. So we're pleased to introduce our guest today, Dr. Alison Tree, who will be discussing her career and work with the MR Linux. Hi Alison, how are you? Hi there, I'm fine now and nice to see you and, and hi Joe. nice to meet you online. So would you mind starting by telling us what your current role is Alison and how you got there? Yeah, so um, I'm a consultant clinical oncologist uh, which is um, a bit peculiar to the UK in that we train both in medical oncology, so drug therapy and also radiation oncology. So in the UK those two specialties are put together into a role called clinical oncology um, and I'm a consultant at the Royal Marsden Hospital. I work at the Sutton branch of the hospital um, and I treat uh, men with prostate cancer, with, a com- with uh, drug therapies or radiotherapy. Um, and I also have a, an academic role, so I'm an honorary reader at the Institute of Cancer Research. And approximately half my job now is looking after patients, um, and the other half is doing research um, on mostly radiotherapy for prostate cancer. Um, I did a lot of training at the Marsden. I've been there for most of the last 20 years, which is quite a scary thought, um, working up from junior doctor and through research fellowship up to consultant. Um, and I, I love working there. I feel very lucky to work with such a great group of people. You don't look old enough, Alison, to have been working at the Marsden oh, for thanks. 20 years. <laughs> Everyone needs to go yes. and check out Alison's linked, <laughs> LinkedIn profile to see how young she looks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You've made my evening now. <laughs> what was it that made you want to go into oncology? Yeah, good question. So, well, well, my other alternative path was A&E, believe it or not, which is like the other end of the spectrum from oncology, because ultimately why I chose oncology was I wanted to build that relationship with, with patients, see them through a whole treatment journey rather than in A&E, uh, which is a lot of your experience as a junior doctor, you're just sort of patching people up and sending them out again. So I like getting to know my patients and their families and seeing them through a whole journey. Often some of my patients I've had um, under my care for nearly 10 years now. So I enjoyed that sort of um, chronology and, and getting to know people as individuals as well. Alison, if anyone doesn't know, what is a reader? A reader, yeah, so that's another U- funny UK term. So it's a bit like an associate professor or an assistant professor. So it's um, you, they, um, it's an academic title, it's an honorary title for me. Uh, so it means that you've done some kind of useful work so far in the academic sphere, I hope. How much reading do you do a week? <laughs> yeah, my kids thought that. They thought, actually, I'm now officially allowed to read. Um, but I don't do enough reading. I'd like to do more reading. <laughs> so, Alison, obviously being part of the MR Consortium, can you tell us a little bit more about that and what your role is? Yeah, so um, I joined the MR Linux Consortium probably in about 2014, 2015, when it was a tiny organisation, really, just of seven centres who'd bought this very new machine, and obviously Electa as the, and Philips as the industry partners. Um, and it, we grew a very tight-knit group very quickly, actually, because we all shared a, um, 
a passion to develop this exciting technology and, and that's really mushroomed over the last decade to now um, I think we've got over 85 global centres as part of the MRLINAC consortium so it's become a much bigger organisation um, and its goals have become more ambitious really and um, those goals are to help uh, implement MR guided radiotherapy to share knowledge across different radiotherapy centres across the world that's um, half of it and the other half is really about research so in radiotherapy we're really good at introducing new technology and some of that is really obvious quick wins where things are obviously better like image guidance um, but with a new machine particularly one that's a little bit more expensive than the normal machines we have a, a duty really to test its capabilities to prove that it makes something better for patients that we can actually feel and demonstrate and so that's the other half of the consortium role is to support research in MR guided adaptive radiotherapy um, I've been part of the I've been led the prostate group since the start actually in over the last year and a bit I've been the chair of the clinical steering committee so taking a more leadership role across the group and trying to determine where we go next what's the next step for the consortium. Being part of one of the first places to have an MLNAC do you feel the responsibility? Yeah I, I do and in particular I feel the responsibility for the NHS because we all work in a resource constrained environment this is a um, at the moment a resource uh, um, heavy machine so we need to make sure that we're testing it in a way that makes sense to the NHS as well as the rest of the world um, and so I do feel that uh, pressure but also um, you know I think that this applies to a lot of the world much of the world doesn't have any radiotherapy at all so we need to keep a global perspective on what we develop um, but I also believe that unless you get these things into clinical use and you test them and find out um, where they work, we can't do things like uh, using, um, trying to drop the number of fractions down to just two treatments, which we'll probably talk about a bit later. So you need these clever machines that are often um, very technical to try and test out ambitious new ideas that might then be able to be rolled out across the world. So that's how I frame it in my head, at least. Alison, if you had to explain to a patient what MR lab was, how would you describe it? Yeah, so I'd um, for prostate patients is easy because most of them have had a, an MRI scan to diagnose their cancer. So I'd say it looks from your perspective, it looks just like an MRI machine, but inside it, it's also got a radiotherapy machine. So we can look at the prostate on, or any other part of the body. Obviously, I treat prostate, but you can look at anything with an MR linac. We can look at it on MRI, which is the best way of visualizing the cancer and the normal healthy tissues. Uh, and then while you're having your treatment, we can still look at your tumor on the MRI while we deliver the radiation dose. And then each day, if the anatomy inside has shifted a little bit, then we can change our radiotherapy plan every day, which is something we'd never been able to do before. And that to me is probably the most exciting thing that we can do with this machine. If your bowel flops closer to your target, then you can just move where your dose is. Um, and it's obviously an elegant way to um, deal with one of the biggest problems of radiotherapy which you guys deal with daily that the anatomy never looks quite the same as it's supposed to look from planning right what can cause someone's internal anatomy to move or like the term you use flop which is a great word <laughs> yeah so our internal anatomy is constantly in flux as we're all sitting here our bowel is squeezing and our bladder is filling um you're breathing so things are moving up and down as you breathe so everything's changing all the time and we have to Normally in radiotherapy, what we do is you, you just put a little margin around everything to make sure you can cover the tumour, but that margin covers some of the healthy tissues as well, the, the normal organs. And so if we can reduce those margins by being more precise with our delivery, then there are many instances where we can show that that reduces side effects.
Alice, and you touched on it earlier, but could you tell us a bit more about the research that you've been involved with at the MRLINAC? Yeah, so I guess the, the research we're doing on the MRLINAC is building on the research we've done at the Royal Marsden over the last couple of decades. So in prostate cancer, we've been looking at shortening treatment. So we were giving radiotherapy every day, Monday to Friday, over eight weeks. That's when I started training. That was the normal treatment. And then the CHIP trial, which was led by one of my colleagues, David Dernley, um, showed that we could do that safely in just four weeks. So that became the standard of care in the UK and across the world, in fact. So most prostate cancer now is, is treated just in, in four weeks. But we've just presented the data from the PACE trial, which has shown um, that five treatments is just as good for men with a very early prostate cancer. So for that group of men, just five treatments of radiotherapy, which we call stereotactic body radiotherapy, um, achieves a very high level of cure with low levels of side effects. And so we're kind of taking that work um, into the MRLINAC space. Uh, and I met, alluded earlier to the fact we've just finished a trial called Hermes, which is a randomized trial just at the Royal Marsden, um, focusing, uh, randomizing rather, between five treatments and just two treatments. So seeing can we cure prostate cancer in just two treatments given one week apart. Um, and that trial is um, just finishing. So we've recruited 46 men who've um, volunteered to be part of the study. And obviously we have to wait for a bit to see how they do. But our impression so far is the men are having a great experience. They, they like the two treatments. They just come twice um, and the side effects appear very low. So that's that's really great news for patients and potentially for departments as well. Reflecting back to when you first became a junior doctor within oncology, did you ever think that we might get to this point? No, never. <laughs> no, I think that we we all become very familiar and comfortable with where we are, and it, it's actually it's change is difficult even when you do research, right? It's difficult to do things um, a different way, um, and we see that because it takes a while for all of these clinical trials. We publish the trial, and then there's always a lag phase where people don't implement it, and that's um, just reflecting that people need to feel comfortable to deliver new treatments. Um, and it's mostly the doctors, the patients are normally ahead of us, actually, in, our, in my experience. They're always very keen to have shorter treatments um, whenever we've tried that. Alison, we know that sometimes radiotherapy is underutilised as a treatment across lots of different cancer sites. Do you think that potentially changing dose and fractionation regimes to ensure that there is capacity to maybe treat more patients, that it might be utilised more? Yeah, I think I think that's a good point, actually. So we all have problems with capacity. We have problems with machine capacity and also radiographers are in short supply, aren't they? So um, I think if we can treat patients more efficiently, that's good for departments. It improves access. It reduces waiting times um, and it makes patients more um, more willing to have treatment. In prostate cancer, some men go off and have a prostatectomy, which is another reasonable option. But actually, if the radiotherapy is easier to go through, it's got no, no downtime. And I think we will attract more people to choose radiotherapy as well, which is the other way to look at it, I suppose. How can you speak to a patient who isn't open to clinical trials? I'm just thinking around health inequities. So yeah. lots of people of colour are quite reluctant to enter clinical trials. How do you approach that? Yeah, that's right. So um, we, we are obviously committed to try and make sure that the populations of patients that we 
put into our trials reflect the men that, you know, in my case, men that are going to benefit from the, the results of the trial and, and ethnic diversity and also age and performance status is all part of that. So it's all very well doing this lovely trial of very fit 60 year olds, but actually everyone's that's going to be applied to everyone. Right. So um, I think it is sometimes about spending a bit extra time to make sure people understand the trial and what you're trying to achieve um, and try not to use terms like experiment. I think you have to talk about this new treatment, this um, you know, innovative treatment, if that's the right uh, phrase to use with that patient. Um, and, and sometimes it's just, uh, I think, that building trust that the, the man in front of you understands that you're trying to make treatments better for him and also for the generation coming up behind. So I think there's a piece about education and also about making sure that our trials are open in a range of geographies, both in terms of ethnic diversity and socioeconomic diversity across the UK. A lot of trial recruitment is London centric because that's where a lot of the big hospitals are. But we need to make sure that these trials reflect a population in various different parts of the UK and also abroad. So we're trying to explore opening a lot of our trials outside of the UK for part of that reason. Alison, do you think that there could be a fear that potentially, you know, some NHS trusts won't be able to afford MRNAC and therefore, you know, as we do see with some treatment techniques already, there's inequity in, in the available radiotherapy techniques that maybe might benefit some patients. Do you think that that might create an issue or is there something that we should be doing now to kind of prepare for that? Yeah, and no, I think that's a great question. So obviously we were lucky at the Royal Marsden. Our machine was paid for by a grant from the Medical Research Council and supported by the Royal Marsden Cancer Charity, which we're, we're lucky to have supporting us. Um, but I, I am concerned that these machines will become sort of niche machines, a bit like certain other machines have been. Um, and I think that would be a shame. I don't think everyone in the UK needs an MRLINAC to treat them, but there are patients who we can see certainly dosimetrically benefit a lot. Um, and it would be nice to have a, um, a small number of machines around the country so that patients could be referred um, to those centres uh, closer to home rather than having to try and travel. And obviously, we, with just two NHS machines at the moment in the UK, that there's very limited supply. So I think that there is an equity issue to, to be addressed there. Um, and it would be great if we could get the NHS to think about strategies for these new machines and how we do test and implement new technology when it's expensive and the NHS is so pressed. Speaking of shortages and the NHS being pressed, I'm going to ask you a difficult question. So obviously the Royal College of Radiologists highlighted the shortage of supply of people like you and obviously the specialty, the specialist registrars as well. How can we stop that being a barrier to implementing more sort of treatments like this in the future? Yeah, that is a difficult question, isn't it? <laughs> I don't have a magic wand to solve it all. I mean, I think uh, we need to attract more people into training into oncology. That's a key thing. Medical students have almost no exposure to oncology as part of their curriculum, and that's a big problem. So we're not attracting them early. The other half of my answer to your question should have been that actually one of my friends at medical school, his dad was an oncologist, and that's what first opened my eyes to the it's a specialty which you don't normally um, get exposure to at medical school. So I think there's a bit about the the flow of um, good people coming into the specialty um, we can't that's the problem is baked in now for at least a decade we can't manufacture oncologists and we shouldn't be stealing them from other countries um, so I think AI has to be part of the solution so we're looking at that like many other centres a lot of my work is drawing around blobs as my children call it um, on scans hand contouring 
um, and that surely has to be um, something that should be constrained to the dustbin before I, I retire. Um, so I think AI can help us with the contouring, it maybe can help us with the planning. There's still going to be a need for therapeutic radiographers to look after the patient on the machine. <laughs> so you're, you, you're both safe for the rest of your careers, no doubt. But um, yeah, I think it's, it will be a tough next decade, I think. We do see through RadChat um, lots of patients contacting us. Maybe had treatment 5, 10, 15, sometimes 25 years later, and they're asking for help and support with late effects. How do clinical trials kind of follow patients through, and how does that then get fed back into essentially looking at dose and fractionation regimes and what's safe because I'm just thinking from a patient perspective if they're going for treatment for two fractions then that's brilliant in the short term but what might the long-term consequences then be and how is that then fed back into what is decided? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, we know for, for the big trials I mentioned, like CHIP and PACE, um, we followed those men up for more than 10 years. So a lot of the CHIP patients got out to 15 years. And if you look at the curves in terms of cancer recurrence and also toxicity, they plateau way before then. So I think what we can see from the data is if you're going to get a bad side effect from radiotherapy, there's normally some signs in the first two years. It's very very few patients get big problems after that. So I think for our newer techniques, we can be reasonably sure that if we've followed them carefully out to five years, we've caught most of the signal in terms of side effects. And um, cure obviously takes a long time to be sure of in prostate cancer. We we see thankfully that the cure rates have gone up over the last decade significantly. Um, but you do occasionally get to patients whose cancer come back after five years um, it is possible so that's a key part of our trials is to keep these patients under review at the moment it's kind of hospital-based review but hopefully in the next era we'll be able to get that data from um, NHS records rather than make the, the patient come back to clinic for a follow-up um, but I think it is very very important that we do monitor these patients particularly with two fractions we, we don't really know yet the, the very long-term side effects we've got good data from brachytherapy where they've been doing two fractions for more than five years Patients seem to do very well. Most of them get cured. There don't seem to be any unexpected side effects, but we need to verify that with external beam radiotherapy. And that's part of what we're doing with Hermes. How many years of data do you need to accurately say, yeah, we're, we're pretty happy that this sort of treatment doesn't give as many side effects or late consequences from treatment? Yeah, so I, I would argue that that should be five years, because if, if you're randomizing in a trial between two treatments, I've never ever seen that there's a, no change at five years and then they become different between five and 10 years. So there there may be some differences. So we can see some in pace, for example, at two years, there are some differences, but those differences between the five treatments and the 20 have gone away by five years. So I think five years for me would be enough. There are some people who would say, I want to wait for 10 years of data. But the, the good thing about prostate is by the time you get to 10 years, everything else has changed. So you're your conclusion is irrelevant because everything else about your treatment at the front end has changed. And that might include things like focal boosts in prostate. We're looking into whether we can give more dose to where the actual cancer is and less dose to the rest of the normal prostate. So 10 years from now, we're probably not going to be doing the same kind of thing as we're doing uh, currently. And so I think if you wait too long, your trial becomes obsolete before you've published it. Alison, a question I've had from a patient before is, there's all of these different advances in prostate treatments, but if I just have it out, why is that not better? 
how would you explain that? Because lots of patients do say, if I just get it out, surely I won't have any issues. Yeah, well, that's very logical, isn't it? You, knew it, it, you would think that was the truth. But um, actually, if you look at the, the so for example, the pay speed um, trial I just mentioned, so led by Nick Van Ass at the Royal Marsden, we just published, just presented that 96% of men have needed no further treatment and have no evidence of cancer on, on PSA blood test at five years. In contrast, if you look at one of our previous trials called Radicals of men who had prostatectomy, nearly a third of those men needed further treatment in the first five years. So although in theory you might think if you cut it out, then it's got to be better, the, the numbers actually don't back that up, that your chances of just having one treatment seems to be better if you have radiotherapy rather than surgery. I'm not saying surgery is a bad treatment. It's a valid choice. Some people choose surgery and that's fine. Um, but it's not uh, a guarantee that you won't need further treatment. And many of those men end up um, seeing me for further radiotherapy. Can hear you in an MDP ad and going <laughs> when they all start talking about surgery. <laughs> Oh, it's, it's important that the, the patient hears both sides and um, patients, when they're diagnosed, they always see a urologist or nearly always. Um, and so it's important that we uh, allow the patients to make their own decision and give them both choices about how they want to be treated. And, and obviously not everyone is suitable for surgery, in which case they will come to radiotherapy anyway. <clears throat> Excuse me. Alison, how do you see the actual delivery of using an MR LINAC maybe changing in therapy? Because I'm old school. I'm a lot older than Numan, unfortunately. Um, and back in my day, you're trying to get an oncologist on set. You may as well have run round the truss three times <laughs> before you can hold yeah. him. If you're doing more adaptive treatments um, and you're potentially choosing different plans each day um, and even you know if you've got the imaging available to be able to make those changes that may be slightly different to a plan and an oncologist isn't available how do you see maybe the MDT on set actually working and maybe maybe changing practice yeah, so here here I do have a magic wand for you, Joe. So well, we, we exactly had that problem. So when we started the MR LINAC, um, we, were seeing, we were down there every, as doctors, we were down there every fraction, every patient, and that's not sustainable in the NHS or anywhere else, I would argue. Um, so we have an amazingly talented group of therapeutic radiographers at the Royal Marsden, as they are across the UK. Um, and so we undertook a programme of training. So they became... Uh, competent to, tr to contour. In fact, they can do it just as well as I can. We've now proven that with numbers. Um, so they've taken over contouring the prostate on a daily basis. Um, so I don't have to be at the machine um, unless it's a, a trial patient or something unusual. Um, and so that's really improved our throughput on the machine, increased our efficiency um, and reduced the cost if we ever were to test the cost of us all being there. Um, at the moment, we still have a physicist for every uh, fraction on the machine, but it, I can see a, a world where actually that won't be needed either. It's a very straightforward machine um, where the radiographers could be doing the planning each day as well. So, um, and also, of course, the next step apart from that is that AI is coming to get all of us, hopefully. So I think once we've cracked AI contouring and AI planning, then the machine practically runs itself. And then you'll always need some human to make sure that it's sensible and, and, and the patient's okay. Um, but I think a lot of this can be automated. And for us, the first step along that pathway is to um, allow the radiographers to contour because they can, as I say, do it as well as I can. What do patients think about going on the MR Linac? Yeah, 
mostly well in fact, exclusively they've they've loved it the patients we've put on so i i thought before we started we'd have problems with claustrophobia because not everyone enjoys mri scans um, and there have been one or two patients who've ruled them out but really just you know a handful of patients over the last five years have said no thank you um, and everyone else has done really well the treatment times are longer so they're on the bed for longer the bed's a bit squishy so they're a bit more comfy um, and we play the music of their choice um, thanks to spotify um, and so they get to just relax on the beds uh, listen to some music for maybe 45 minutes or whatever um, and the, the feedback from patients has been unbelievably positive so surprisingly positive I thought patients would struggle with the longer treatment times but that's really not been the case. And Alison what can you see happening in the future you've kind of alluded to the fact that things are going to move rapidly so from your perspective kind of chairing the yeah. MRNAC consortium what what kind of conversations have you had that make you go, oh, well, that could sound exciting. And I get that it's not necessarily implemented yet, but is there anything that you also can foresee in the future? Yeah, so I, I guess we've talked about some of it, haven't we? For prostate, I think it's shorter fractionations. It's putting the dose where it can do most good and least harm. So over the cancer and reducing the dose uh, to the whole the rest of the prostate. And I think that um, sort of paradigm is applicable to lots of different cancers. Probably prostate is not the one you would have picked first of all. We already do a pretty good job for most men, thankfully. But for other areas that are trickier to treat, like the pancreas, the liver, this machine has a lot more potential. Um, and the, the Electa Unity, the machine that we have now, will now have um, motion monitoring, so the, the dose can track where the tumour is when it moves and that will be the next uh, big thing to change I think and that will enable us to really test some uh, ambitious dose schedules that we haven't been able to get into the upper abdomen before which I hope will improve outcomes for people with um, much more aggressive cancers like pancreatic cancer um, and even maybe brain tumours as well we can see the tumour moving during treatment not literally move geometrically moving but growing and shrinking and if we can adapt for those changes we can hopefully cure more patients and spare more normal brain from from the side effects Alison you're obviously very passionate about patients and technology and treatment and what you've said what would you say to medical students who aren't sure where they want to go moving forward apart from obviously change career and be a therapeutic radiographer what would you say <laughs> <laughs> Yes, apart from that, um, I would say that the oncolo oncology is one of the, the ideal specialty. When you go into medicine, you want to be with people, you want to treat patients and make life better. And, and what better time to do it at one of the most stressful times in anyone's life when you get told you've got cancer and you get to get to know your patients, um, to Sort of walk with them through that pathway and you also get to play with these really cool toys which are called Linux um, and they do amazing things they use light to cure cancer which is a, a miracle every day and I think we should be um, very uh, proud of what we do we should be um, telling every medical student who will listen that they should go into oncology that brings us quite nicely towards the end of the episode um, we always like to end with top tips so I know you've covered medical students but do you have any top tips for any of our other listeners oh gosh that's a big question isn't it top tips so um I well I guess top tips for um doctors because that's what I am would be to find things that you're passionate about find problems that your patients are experiencing and then try and solve those um, for those that want to go into research and we should all be thinking about research or joining in research because otherwise nothing gets any better but start with a, 
as something that needs to be solved. Start, start with a problem, ideally a problem that a patient has gone through and think, how can I make that better? What would I need to do to um, reduce the impact of that problem for the next patient? Um, yeah, so I would say go to your local oncology centre. We have a fantastic group of oncologists across the UK, um, particularly in prostate cancer, but across the different types. Um, and most of the UK has a research active centre in their region. So things, the trials I've mentioned and many that I haven't mentioned are running across the UK. So we try and make it as applicable to a, the whole country as possible. Um, and go and ask about research. Say, would I be suitable for any clinical trials you have running? Um, because it's... It, it's um, Running trials is, is really difficult. It's hard to recruit patients often. It takes a lot of extra time. None of us are funded for that or paid for that extra work. Most people do it in their spare time. And it's just lovely when a patient comes in and says, I, I want to be part of research. Do you have anything I can join in with? So if anyone's listening, then go and ask your oncologist if there are any trials I can join in with um, and how can I help? Because it's only as a partnership between us um, and our multidisciplinary team and the patients that we can and the, the funders of course that we can make things better perfect thank you so much Alison for coming on no problem my pleasure so thank you everyone for listening to Rad Chat so your hosts today have been Lamanjor Anderson and Joe McNamara if you're utilizing this podcast for CPD purposes please consider the reflective questions posted along with the links to resources and literature that we've discussed to receive your accredited CPD certificate please complete the form linked with the podcast Make sure you check out all the wonderful social media posts we have along with these episodes. Thank you for listening and take care.